I'm Andy Murphy from the Navajo Nation, and this is the Toasted Sister Podcast, a show about indigenous food. almost four years since I started this podcast and I haven't done a show about Thanksgiving. Well, here it is. Thanks to Why Hunger for kicking me into gear. This is a collaboration episode. Here's a little bit about Why Hunger. At Why Hunger, we don't just ask why. We find solutions to hunger that transform, last, and tackle urgent human needs. Nutritious food is a human right and hunger is solvable. That's why we work with grassroots organizations and social movements across the globe to ensure everyone has access to nutritious food in efforts to help nourish people now and end hunger for good. This year marks the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower voyage and landing at Cape Cod, and that's a prelude to that first Thanksgiving dinner between the Pilgrims and the Indians. If you're following your regular American historical programming, everyone ate and got full and happy. Well, those Indians, the Wampanoag, experienced it differently. In this episode, we'll hear from a couple of Wampanoag women about how more than 400 years of colonization affected their food and what they think about current day Thanksgiving. Let's start with Chef Sherry Pocknick. Her restaurant is called Sly Fox Den. Wow, Andy. You know, it's, it's, I have a lot of thoughts and they're not great. First of all, I'm going to be just quite blunt about this. They, the colonizers, they still don't want to recognize Native people are oppressed. That boat means a lot of stuff happened 400 years ago. Disease, the loss of language, our beliefs, the loss of land, the loss of food. People that think that this is, oh, this boat carried my ancestors over here, but what did, what happened with that? It's a lot to be said. You know, Andy, it's a lot to be said about the native people that were here. It was not about those, the, the uh, colonizers. It's about the native people. What happened to us? They, peop- they just don't think about us. They're still thinking about themselves. And I don't want to seem... You know, they're still thinking, well, today it's a celebration because of this Mayflower. They're they're bringing the Mayflower over, and it's a great thing. But really what happened 400 years ago, for me, 400 years ago and on, in the middle, in the end, now, I mean, 400 years ago, when we greeted them, when when we helped them survive, sustain, and they took everything away. So how am I supposed to feel? I don't feel good about that. I don't feel I don't I don't feel like it should be a celebration. So that's how I feel. In a nutshell. We help these people and then look what they do. What look what this they don't even want to give us one day of recognition. You know what I mean? Indigenous People Day. Did you sit, hear that president? 
they're still real ignorant. And they really need to be educated. It makes me sad. Yeah, there's there's a lot of erasure that that is happening and it doesn't feel good to be the one, you know, just being erased and forgotten. So yeah, and they, cool. they continue to want to erase us. They continue. I mean, it, 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 they, they, they don't want to acknowledge us even in the polls. Even in the polls, did you see that? Something else, 6%, something else. Yeah. That's going around. <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> so it's been, it's been 400 years. How has Wampanoag food been affected by, by that, by the settlers and, and by colonization? How about this? Number one, removal of habitat for animals, fish, overfishing, overhunting, poisoning our land. We, we live by the bounty of the season. We hunt by the bounty of the season. Our new year starts in the spring when new, new life comes. After the winter, you know, the winter freezes, the winter, it snows, it's cold and that's the cleanse for us. That's the, that's the winter season. And then you get spring and you have your um, vegetation coming. It's, it's all new. So this is when we celebrate. There's something that we um, celebrated is called herring. The herring are fish that come from the south and they come every year springtime. And that tells us it's a new, new year. We don't have that abundance like we used to, you know what I mean? Because of a lot of things, really overfishing is one of the biggest, one of the biggest because now you have ships and these fish are migrate, they migrate. So they come to us in the springtime and this is one of our biggest sources of stability for Wampanoag people anyways on the East Coast. They come from the ocean. And they spawned in our, in our ponds. They're there the end of summer. Then they start swimming back. And, you know, sometimes when they swim back, if there's something that, like, like when, they're, when they're swimming back, say somebody blocked the river for them not to get back, it kills off. I mean, I, I remember one year that was millions and millions of fish just killed because it was no water because someone had to block up the river for block up the dam for a reason. And um, so that following year, we didn't have as many coming back. Um, And then what I hear is overfishing in the ocean, in the big ocean, you know what I mean? Oh, Oh, by Russian ships and, you know, Chinese and, you know, different countries fishing for these herring. And it's been like this for a long, long time. This is just one example of a, a, a fish. And, and, and it also includes overfishing of like striped bass and eels. We don't even have eels that much anymore because of the contaminants in the waters that are, or, or um, invasive species like something called the Phragmite. It's a, it's a plant that chokes off all the other good eelgrass and plants and stuff like that. I could go on and on. But just, you know, um, habitat, clearing out um, our animals' homes. The, and, and But that went in massive. That was massive. You know, all these people coming over, 
So we have to think about different ways that we have to, you know, sustain ourselves or maybe help this thing um, survive or let t we'll take the Chinook. We used to, on the East Coast, in, in my area, we used to have salmon runs. I mean, they still have a little bit of salmon that come, but we don't fish. We don't really fish salmon. We have to, you know, salmon is more upstate, more Alaska, more Canada, more, you know, different places. And right in my area, um, in Mashpee, there used to be salmon. So now there's no more. There were, there were Chinook salmon. So we're, we're going to hopefully um, make that happen again. I can't say enough about, you know, taking care of this land. And, and if you don't take care of it, you, you won't have that bounty of the season. Right. Uh, what are you trying to do to revitalize indigenous Wampanoag food? I am trying to teach. I, I love to teach. Um, indigenous Wampanoag food, I love to teach about the bounty of the seasons. I love to teach about our way of life, our life ways. And I actually had a class a few years ago. We're going to teach you, these kids and parents or whoever wants to learn about the bounty of the season and how we lived as seasonal people back in the day. But um, I, I grew up in the 60s and both parents were Wampanoag and they taught us the way, you know, our life ways being seasonal people and taught us early how to go and get these fish, what we had to do to prepare to get the fish. I'm talking about these same herring. We first made nets. We taught them where it goes. We taught them what we did with the fish. We taught them how to identify male from female, um, that you can eat the roe inside, what to do with that whole fish. So I'm cutting the tail off. I'm cleaning the fish. I'm scaling it. Um, cutting the head off and the guts and we're throwing that in gardens. That was fertilizer. That's what we use for fertilizer for gardens. And then we would take the backs of the fish and we would salt them. We would cook them how they were. We would, um, um, something called corning and it's a three day salt and you put the fish in salt for three days and, you know, just teaching that type of stuff and letting the, the kids and the students know really how it was back in the day, how we survived as seasonal people and letting them know what's next. So after the heron, we, we, were, we were hunting for wild garlic, wild ramps, which is onion, wild onion, wild onion and sassafras tea and sunchokes and so much of a variety of different food and that you can still harvest. So my idea is to get these classes going again for our communities and teaching our children. And they're gonna, they're, my, grand, my children, my grandchildren, we still live by the season. They learned how to live by the season. We still know our traditional ways. And this is all passed down through oral history and, and living our life ways, not by a book. Instead of planting grass and using Scott's Turf Builder, we're going to plant vegetables and food, and we're going to learn about seeds instead. 
very strong feelings, and you can't blame her. Before the pilgrims arrived, tribes in the area had already experienced the horrors of massacres, slavery, and smallpox by European settlers. Let's hear more from Danielle Hill. Waninukan Natasui, Danielle Ka Running Water, Ka Pamachuan, Nutomas Masipi Wampanaak. Um, my name is Running Water. I'm also known as Danielle uh, Hill or Danielle Reindeer most recently. And uh, I am from the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe. Let's start with uh, maybe a little bit of history. What was, what was going on uh, you know, 400 years ago? And what was the state of the Wampanoag tribe then? You know, what was the food situation like back then? 400 years ago was the year 1620, and uh, that was the arrival of the Mayflower. And so the pilgrims um, arrived uh, on Cape Cod, um, and they were there, and then they sort of went back and forth to Plymouth, uh, which was also called Patuxet um, at the time. And four years prior, the natives in that area were hit by smallpox. It's sort of uncertain exactly what was happening at the time, but the result of whatever they were enduring was disease and death, um, sickness. And so history tells us, and and him in history would be um, the writings from either Edward Winslow or um, George Mort, who wrote uh, Mort's Relations, and a few other of these European men um, have written what all of us now know to be the history. But essentially, from a her story perspective, and just sort of using common sense, the natives at that time either fled and absorbed themselves into neighboring tribes, or they um, did descend on into the spirit world, or they may have even shape-shifted into other beings um, and went into the sea. And so essentially when the uh, pilgrims arrived, they didn't see many natives. And so that helped them in their own mind to assume that they could stay in that place um, and make themselves at home in other people's homes, which is exactly what they did. They took the food that was there, but abandoned. Uh, they went into the abandoned Wetus uh, and took pots. And essentially they were in survival mode and they were looking for ways to survive, whether it be through finding and sourcing goods or food or just um, uh, furs or whatever they could gather because it was November, so it was very cold um, at the time in New England. And they didn't really have um, any encounters with natives for about a good four months while they were there. So what what kind of led up to the actual like Thanksgiving dinner and what were some of those foods there? So um, the pilgrims were trying to survive and they were introduced to a gentleman whose name was Samoset. And he's a native man who was captured and lived in 
uh, England. So he was able to speak to the pilgrims, and he also was able to speak in his native tongue. So he taught them how to plant corn, and essentially, probably how to identify other edible foods, and how to probably prepare them. I mean, that is um, me just using my common sense. I mean, it's written down that Samoset taught them how to plant, and that's really about it. But he most likely stayed with them and helped them to survive. So a whole entire year later, um, so that brings us to 1621 in the fall time, the pilgrims have recorded that they are celebrating their first harvest. Um, In the words of history, um, or Edward Winslow, his accounts sound positive. He says that they uh, feasted for three days. So himself, the pilgrims, and uh, Massasoit, who was a chief in that area, and 90 of his men feasted for three days and um, celebrated essentially that in my mind is always good. It is always good to celebrate food and the abundance of food and survival, especially as newcomers. I mean, I don't have necessarily uh, any bias or I'm not speaking from a 2020 modern person. I can only just look back and say, yeah, that was probably worth celebrating. None of us really know exactly the relations at that time. But through his words, it sounded as if it was a good thing. That leads us to now think about what Thanksgiving means to us in modern day. And also since that first harvest, how Native Americans have been treated since. And that helps us all to realize how much we should be celebrating today. (laughs) What do you think celebration should look like today? I absolutely think that we should celebrate a harvest feast. Uh, It is harvest time. Harvest time probably would have actually happened about a month or so ago. And the invention of uh, America's Thanksgiving didn't happen until 1860s. And so it was probably placed in the month of November. That was 400 years ago that the harvest feast happened and maybe the the climate was different. but right now, it's, we've already you know, experienced the first frost. Like You probably wouldn't be harvesting a lot of crops right now. So to me, that's just one slight discrepancy when it comes to agriculture and a holiday. Since it is in November, uh, I think the best that we all can do is to, number one, give thanks to all of the Native American communities uh, that have sacrificed their men and their women, and that have endured um, various levels of oppression over time. I think that's the first thanks that we all should just acknowledge on that holiday. The second thing I would say is we should be celebrating and serving each other the foods that were abundant at the time of the first harvest. And many of those foods are still abundant today. The Mashpee Wampanoag people have never been relocated or displaced, and we still exercise our Aboriginal hunting and fishing rights. So we're still actually eating the same foods that our ancestors ate. The fowl, the turkeys, the birds, the lobster, the fish, the berries, the corn, the beans, the squash, like all of that 
still um, is abundant and still is growing here today. So I feel like that's really special and something to celebrate. So cooking those same foods and if you can, preparing them in similar ways would be really um, honorable. And then also creating a spirit meal. Um, That should be something that families should do, whether or not you're Native or not Native, but that's one way to indigenize your Thanksgiving meal. And that's very simple. It's just taking a portion of everything that you have served and putting it on a small plate and offering it to the spirits and to the ancestors um, and, and placing it usually outside. You know, the surface level, it's okay if you witness like an animal or something eating your food. Um, many of us do believe that our past ancestors do take animal form. So that's just one way that you can help, that you can just honor Thanksgiving in a more authentic way. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned that, you know, a lot of these foods are still very abundant and readily available. Um, You know, there are lots of tribal businesses out there that are producing, even growing and you know, creating food for sale. And sometimes they will do it uh, on a website and they will ship it to you. Um, Is that how you've been uh, able to taste foods from all over? Absolutely. Um, The website IndianAg.org has an amazing list of native food producers. And you can absolutely just order your blue cornmeal or your smoked salmon, um, you know, and these tribes are from all over the country. So you can diversify, you know, you don't have to necessarily just eat things from like the New England area, you know, um, but you can just honor these, these native businesses and support them financially. And then and just honor the foods that are organic and non-GMO and grown by native hands. Yeah, definitely. That's been kind of like the most exciting thing to keep learning about as the producer of this podcast is there's, you know, lots of people that I've come to know, you know, on social media who are sharing all these little businesses just kind of like popping up here and there. And, you know, there's so much. And uh, another resource, you know, the listeners, you listeners can go to is the, the Toasted Sister a website, uh, ToastedSisterPodcast.com, that has a whole list of Native food businesses and a whole map of Native restaurants. Of course, when it's uh, safe to, to go out and, and visit, you know, restaurants after COVID. Um, you know, you talked about uh, Thanksgiving and, and kind of celebrating in a different way, a whole different way. That would be really delicious. Uh, so what is like the state of Wampanoag food today? The state of Wampanoag food today is um, pretty good, to be honest. Um, We still, like I had mentioned, we're still exercising our Aboriginal hunting and fishing rights. So many of our tribal members are still fishing and sourcing our fish and shellfish locally. Um, We do have a tribal business called First Light Oysters. It's a project that not only cleans up the bay through the farming of oysters, um, but it also is a food product that we do sell to local restaurants in the area. And we just all try to eat as, um, as local and as mashby as possible. Um, it's one thing to say and eat locally, like in our minds, 
that's a wonderful mindset. You know, not only are you supporting local businesses and, you know, you're um, eating from a place that you know, but the more that you ingest food that has been grown in your soil um, and in the waters that are around you, the more you become the place that you are living. So for example, you know, I mash the Wampanoag and I introduce myself by saying I'm Mashby. I don't say I'm from Mashby or, or I live in Mashby. Like I'm Mashby because I literally eat and ingest Mashby. Like the minerals that are in the earth, like the, the whatever's in the water that our fish are eating, I'm eating too. Like I, so that helps us and native people really become our sense of place. And that's how we've always identified ourselves. Um, so if the waters are polluted, then I'm polluted. Like, like I can't separate myself from my environment. That's why it's really important for us to continue to be stewards of our land and defend our land and protect our land from pollution, from development, from corruption, um, just from anything that would harm our plants and our animals that directly affects us as people um, and as a community. And that's something and a message that we've been trying to tell our neighbors and our non-Native allies and people that live here in Mashpee and Wampanoag Territory. And it's, and it's a concept that you really have to understand if you want to become a genuine ally because we protect our land, not just for ourselves. It's for our survival as a people. It's just a continual fight for our survival and the survival of the plants and the animal beings. And that's so important for everybody to, to do and partake in. When I think about what I put in my body, I can't separate it from it being alive. So um, I think that's the first thing that we have to get away from and what we all should strive towards is just the rights of nature and the aliveness and the, and the, the soul of whatever it is we're eating um, and whatever it is we're consuming. So native or non-native, that's what we have to get away from is the commodification of these plant animal beings, which is called food. So I, I don't know, it's hard to, for me to kind of wrap my head around, but here in Mashpee, because we're, we've generationally been so connected with our foodways, um, we still look at these plant animal beings as if they're alive and that they're just helping to nourish us and that they're giving their, their mind, their bodies and their souls to us and we become them. Um, and that's how we gain knowledge. That's how we gain intelligence. That's how we gain strength. That's how we gain energy. And so that is something that I know other tribes who have been relocated um, and displaced are striving to get back to. Um, unfortunately, they've had generations of commodity foods or dead food and which have impacted their health and many tribes um, are trying to reintroduce themselves back into their traditional food ways. And that's so important because it's, again, it's just another extension of our survival and you can't, you know, you, these tribes are probably not going to relocate anywhere, but the best that they can do is just find out what they used to eat and how they prepared it and then find their, um, 
find their uh, traditions or their prayers that go along with that plant or with that animal and just strengthen that and just, you know, figure out how to prepare it, how to cook it, you know, how to eat it fresh. Um, and so that's, that's pretty much what um, my work is uh, involved in. It's sort of the spiritual aspect of eating, I guess. And I literally just made that up just now as we talked, but it's like, that's the, that's the closest that I can get to what it is I'm, I'm trying to find out, like what it is I'm trying to express through my work. And that's just, how can I just deepen my spirituality through the spirituality or the spirit that exists in what I'm eating? Danielle is part of a large network of Native people who are reclaiming every part of food, even the spirituality attached to it. Next, let's hear from Talia Landry. She's a production coordinator with Mashpee TV. So good day. My name is Talia Red Clay, and I'm from Mashpee, and I'm from the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe. So Talia, tell me a little bit about your job and uh, what you do in your community there at Mashpee. Yes, well, currently I am working for the local access station um, in Mashpee. And what I've been particularly interested in or my forefronter of my job has been to really connect the tribal community within Mashpee and the non-native community in Mashpee and really try and get get our culture out there as well as a better understanding for non-native so it's more inclusive because a lot of our history is very it's unsettling because we were when the um, colonists first came over we we um, helped them protected them um, sort of thing and taught them how to live but then as things were happening in america was formed obviously natives were pushed off their land we stayed on some natives were tribes were pushed off their land we stayed on our land but in order to do that we had to sacrifice a lot of our culture and a lot of our just our rights to certain lands so we it mashby actually got turned into an indian settlement and reservation for a very long time that was protected by um the government the english government or british government um when it came down to um choosing whether or not we wanted to become American citizens. We voted twice and our tribe said no, but the United States thought that we didn't know we were better off being citizens. So they forced citizenship upon us. And then we were immersed and we lost our reservation land and our settlement. So then we were just completely immersed and assimilated with the non-native community. So within that, there was a lot of ignorance and conflict, but at the same time, also a a growing together, so to speak. Now, um, the non-natives are very more open to natives. And my job is basically just to exemplify that and to show, you know, different things that non-natives might be questioning or um, just to make them feel, I think, a little bit more comfortable and at ease of knowing, you know, more about the natives that reside over this land and are stewards of the land that they are presently residing in. When you think about all of the history, um, you know, the the awful history of violence, um, you know, a couple hundred years ago, even 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 up to to now, there's lots of injustices that, you know, we're learning about, we're experiencing today just in in Native America. Um, Does it does it make you angry? And then how do you get over that that anger or how do you use that anger? I mean, I think every native person might hold a little bit of anger or resentment towards, you know, 
the American society or just America as a whole because of what had to be done to Native Americans in order for America to be created. And there was a lot of genocide, um, disease, violence, and just untrustful, you know, communication between Natives and non-Natives when developing. So it does make me angry, but it also, as I've grown a bit um, into my adult life, I think I've been a little bit more humbled about it um, because rather than being mad, you know, that our ancestors helped these newcomers into this world, I'm more thankful that we are those type of people that can welcome others, outsiders with open arms that we're understanding, that it's naturally in our DNA to be welcoming or to be helpful and to thrive like that. So I think I've turned, my anger has turned more into like a, a gratitude of who we are and that we actually are still here and exist because we're not um, the type of people that are what we would, would modernize be called like as pushovers, but we just, we were respectful and we held our own in our own ways. And that's the reason why we're here because if we were pushovers, we would be extinct. So I think that's very important to recognize. I think the thing that angers me though, is the lack of real history that is discussed about in America because you know there's indigenous people here all around and that's something that we should be teaching our children way before we're teaching them about you know the outside world or even like different um societies and stuff like that or um politics and stuff i think it's very important it should be kind of their their foundation is to learn about the indigenous people of america rather than kind of shove it in there during thanksgiving time for a month and just kind of teach the fabricated myth of what Thanksgiving has, you know, been based around. So you're all about educating people about your own culture. Do you think education is enough or should we just like revamp the whole month or even even the holiday? Um, that's pretty tough. I mean, I definitely no, don't know the, the perfect answer for that, but I think I would start by not teaching the myth of Thanksgiving as something that's historical because when you do that then you're you're teaching kids a lie and then when they get older and realize that it's a lie they're not going to know what to believe and it's confusing and it's not right for natives and non-natives to go through that because sometimes you have kids natives in school and you know if the teacher doesn't know enough about the history of what they um considered the first Thanksgiving, sometimes they don't even know that those, the Wampanoags even exist. And you could have a little native kid sitting there and saying, um, I'm right here. Because that's kind of something that, you know, my generation had to go through until we got to this great, um, a better partnership with the school and the tribe. So now we're fully acknowledged, but that's just here in Mashpee. If you go a town over or two towns over, they're still not even as politically correct or accurate, historically accurate. It's a very difficult time. I think um, if they want to make um, November the, you know, um, Native American History Month, then do just that and actually teach the histories. But also, when revolving around Thanksgiving, teach it what it's about. Say, yeah, um, you know, what we base the first Thanksgiving off of is off of Mort's relation that isn't necessarily you know, the pilgrims and the Wampanoags coming together or either being invited or whatsoever and be having this friendly interaction. The fact of the matter is the only thing that we know, according to Mort's relation, is that um, the pilgrims, they, they had a successful harvest, they shot off some cannons, and then our Satra Massasoit came with 91 warriors. That's all we know, but we know that they weren't invited. 
and we know that they stayed for three days to feast and part of their kind of celebration but they weren't invited and it wasn't something that was like a friendly encounter at first because it wasn't an invite sort of situation so it's not like they're all sitting at the table being kumbaya it's more like let's figure out what's going on with these <laughs> these outsiders but i do like the gist of thanksgiving of the americanized thanksgiving because i think america definitely does need that sort of thing they need some sort of time to be grateful or thankful for things because i think that's very forgotten in the americanized culture so i do appreciate that they kind of took a piece of our culture and turned it into their own a bit by like just exemplifying gratitude but i think they should do it a different way cuz it's even incorrect of how their thanksgiving happens because it happens in november if you know around here in massachusetts people know that you know your harvest is done back in october or september you're not celebrating a bountiful harvest at the end of november when the when the <laughs> when the ground's cold and you can't grow anything anymore so i mean that's completely inaccurate so i think if it's taught the way that it's the historical part of it and then maybe just mention like um during thanksgiving time because we celebrate at this time even though it's not accurate that you should be thankful for the indigenous people around you and we should be thankful for indigenous people in america in general because they are the stewards of this land and they're the reason why that we have all these resources when the colonizers came over to begin with so i think that's a great start is to kind of i don't know like hit that myth right in the head and tell it for what it is it's a myth and even though kids are young if you tell them the way that it is and just say you know it's a great time to be together with family and be thankful and it was based off of um or it was a piece of the native american culture that we turned into an americanized thing so we can be thankful or have a time to sit down with family and be thankful then i think that's a better way to approach it rather than saying this kind of kumbaya situation happened between natives and non-natives at that time <laughs> So um that's the only thing about Thanksgiving but also with natives too um just to remember like there is obviously going to be some anger in you but also try to be a little bit grateful as well because we are still here and I think that's so important especially for our youth that are going through that stage of like trying to figure out that intergenerational trauma and like just having feelings and not knowing where it's coming from that it's okay to be mad you know it is okay to be mad try not to take it out on <laughs> non-natives but it is it is okay and it and it's okay to reach out to elders and tribal members to discuss these things because it's humbling at the same time. Yes, that anger is something I've dealt with too. I still deal with it. Learning about the real history of America is learning about one injustice after another after another until present day 2020. It'll break your heart and it'll make you angry. But I say that's a good thing. For me, I turn that anger into energy for the work I do today, and having a broken heart only makes me tougher and thankful that we're all still here. So don't let these uncomfortable feelings of anger and heartbreak turn you away from learning about indigenous people and our food. Use that to understand us and make more meaningful connections with us. So as long as Thanksgiving is still a federal holiday, who knows, it could change. And when November comes around, which is National Native American Heritage Month, learn about the contemporary us. Find out what tribes are in your area and learn about the issues they face today. And learn about their food and taste their food. 
I've been asked a lot about how non-natives can support natives during this time, and here's my answer. Learn about the issues that are important to us right now, and support native food companies, chefs, and restaurants. This podcast and the website Toasted Sister Podcast is full of names, and there's a long list of native-owned food companies and a map of native-owned restaurants there. Also, check out American Indian Foods at indianagfoods.org. Thanks once again to Why Hunger for this collaboration, and thanks to Chef Sherry Pocknick, Danielle Hill, and Talia Landry. Subscribe to Toasted Sister Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe to the newsletter via the website. Support through Patreon and by purchasing some Toasted Sister merch on the website, ToastedSisterPodcast.com. This podcast is supported by the Kiwanik Broadcast Corporation. Music is created by one-man band, C.W. Ion. Find his music at cwion.com. That's c-w-a-y-o-n.com. And we'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>